Starting with verse 10, if your Bibles are open, Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, Paul is basically encouraging the body of Christ. You're saying, be, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Everyone wants to be strong rather than weak. Nobody really desires to, I want to be weak in Christ. Uh, now, there is a, we know that his strength is made perfect in weakness, but he's speaking of that we would have that strength that comes from God. So he's not speaking uh, certainly of physical strength, but that we would have a spiritual strength that's able to withstand and stand through difficulties, attacks, uh, all the trials and tribulations of life. And he says to do this, uh, you're going to have to put on the whole armor of God. There's something we have to do. Um, even though it's, uh, we, we talked about this last time in, in our study of Romans, uh, as A.W. Tozer speaks about the fact that you know, we, didn't, uh, we didn't really uh, initiate our pursuit of God. God pursued us first, and then henceforth, we do pursue Him because He's placed the desire in our heart to pursue Him. Uh, we wouldn't naturally have a desire to pursue God. God pursues all of mankind, and then once He pursues us, and we finally look up and say, and we've come to our senses, and we, we repent, and we give our lives to Him, then He puts, because He puts His Spirit within us, we have a desire to follow Him. And then the, God puts initiative on our part. He does not, uh, we are not a bunch of marionettes, that He's doing everything. Uh, he is giving us direction, He's giving us guidance, but He's giving us His Spirit to accomplish it. So He says, we, we as a body of brethren, we, we are to be strong in the Lord in the power of whose might? His might. Knowing that Jesus said, apart from me you can do Nothing. You don't have any might. You don't have any strength. You don't bring, uh, we don't really bring anything to the table. Um, you know, I remember when I first got saved and we were at Calvary Fort Lauderdale, always stuck in my mind that Bob would say from time to time, you know, uh, I'm a self-made man. He's like, I didn't know you were making your organs in your bedroom and your be you know, you're, you're, you're making sure that your heart continues to pump. Uh, we don't really have any control over the fact that we live breathe, any of those things are a gift from God. We don't have any strength that we bring to the table, but we can tap into His strength and to be strong in Him. But if we're going to stand, if the Lord wants to arm us so that we can stand, as verse 11 says, that we can stand against the wiles of the devil, it's going to take obedience 
and it's going to take an act of the will to stand and apply the armor of God, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's, it's a command here. It's here's what you need to do, but you're now going to have to do it. God says, I'll give you the strength. You'll have my might, you'll have my strength, but you're going to have to put the whole armor of God on. Now, he'll provide the armor. We'll get to that uh, as we go through our study tonight, but we are going to have to apply it. We're going to have to put the armor of God on. And once applied, once the armor of God is applied in our life, uh, we then can stand and will stand with confidence and strength that we didn't have before we put on the armor of God. And this allows us to then go and do the commands that he's given us. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a situation you're like, what, how does this process start? Because you think of people that are weak and immature and sickly as all of us, spiritually speaking, right? When you came to know the Lord, uh, you didn't, it's not like you had, or maybe you had a lot of knowledge, but again, you didn't have the walk and maturity of the Lord uh, that, say, Moses had. Or Paul did. They had, they had walked a lot of miles with the Lord. They had won a lot of battles. You're brand new. That's why you're a babe in Christ when you first come to know the Lord. But every baby continues to grow, but even once you grow past baby stage, like you're a seven-year-old in the faith or something like that, you still don't have the strength to take on the kind of adversary that Satan is. Would you agree? You're talking about uh, Satan's been around a long time. And the kind of wiles and the kind of attacks that he brings, uh, to begin with, we don't have much strength. We're very weakly, uh, very sickly, uh, in, in spiritually speaking. And so you're like, you know, how, do, how does one put on the whole armor of God? We've been told to do it, but just getting up off the couch, as it were, seems hard enough as it is, right? Uh, a lot of times... Uh, something that we're asked to do by God doesn't seem like we can actually do it. And God says, don't, don't listen to the fact that you think you can't. Just obey and I'll then give you the strength to take those steps to apply these things. Once we, through humble obedience and belief in what God will provide, Again, we have to believe what He will provide. Whether we've touched it yet, whether we've experienced His power, whether we have felt like, wow, I really feel like God has strengthened me. I feel like I have the armor of God on. I feel like I can go anywhere and speak for the Lord, do things for Him. But if we believe that He will provide these things, right? We believe that He would provide gospel of peace, helmet of salvation, all the things that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. Then we say, Lord, I'll apply it by faith and let you do the rest. We'll wonder why we waited so long. That's really what it comes down to. We, we will say, Lord, I don't quite understand how all this works, but I'm going to apply what I understand and let you do the rest. I believe when we stand, uh, there's what Paul uses the imagery of literal battle gear. But I want to peel it back a little bit and say if he uses the imagery of battle gear, what are the spiritual components behind this that we can really understand? Because it's not like you've really grabbed a helmet 
And you've re- you think of the terms that he uses, helmet of salvation, you think of these things, but you don't really grab anything tangible. You're thinking, Lord, how, how does this apply? I, I understand the concept, but how do I really walk in the armor of God? Well, the first thing to understand is when we stand to place the armor of God on, he's promised to do it, but we have to obey the command. You're obeying, this is all taking place in the spirit world of your prayer life and your talk with Jesus. Say, Lord, how do I do this? Well, when we stand, we stand first and foremost, follow this, in grace, through, ga- through grace, and by grace, he gives us the strength as we access and appropriate his power. I'll say that one more time, because I said grace three times. We actually stand first and foremost in his grace, through his grace, and by grace, he gives us strength to access and appropriate his power. In Romans 5.20, we were in Romans 5 you know, several weeks or a couple months ago now, back, Romans 5.20, it says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more, right? So the first thing to know is a lot of times our own sinful flesh is so much in the way that we don't assume we could apply the armor of God even if we wanted to because we look and see all the imperfections. And you'd say, it's kind of like, you know, before someone goes through boot camp and training, uh, maybe they were more out of shape than when they get done, they're all ripped and they can do 100 pull not 100 pull-ups, that'd be a lot, but uh, 100 push-ups and they can do a whole lot of pull-ups and everything. But before they started, they wouldn't be able to pass the test. And so we see ourselves before boot camp, so we're like, there's no way we can even do this, so why even try, because I still have too many sins, too many imperfections, Uh, this isn't going to work. And that's where you have to understand, go back to Romans 5.20, and God says, I understand how flawed you are. I understand that you're not made to be a Navy SEAL in the body of Christ, in yourself. You're much less... Uh, you're, you're probably the local um, security guard or something. I don't know. But you're not really ready to be uh, you know, some special forces with the armor of God. But let me, un- let, and God would say, but let me explain. If you're willing to receive my grace, my grace is greater than your sin, and you can move past it. Now, he won't allow you to stay in sin. That's not what we're saying. God is saying, I don't need a 10-week plan, I can clean you up tonight. And this process can begin immediately. There, it, it's not a 10-week boot camp. Like, oh, after you've done 10 weeks of this, God allows us to put the armor on. No, you can put the armor on tomorrow, tonight. But you have to first appropriate His grace and say, thy grace is greater than my sin, and I can actually receive God's cleansing and forgiveness. Now our flesh and Satan will lie to us. It'll lie to us. Uh, but we have to claim the grace of God through confession, through repentance, and then we can stand and receive the armor that God only can provide. Right? We can't produce this armor. It's spiritual in nature. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. All right? Peter tried to use a real sword, and he did. He took off Malchus's ear. Right? What did Jesus do? Takes Malchus's ear, puts it back, Every time I read that story, I wonder, did not anyone say, this must be the Son of God, because when have you seen that happen? 
But he used a real sword, but Jesus was going to teach Peter how to use a spiritual sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 6. So these are spiritual terms, spiritual things, but the first spiritual point that we have to, uh, or the first, uh, I guess you would say, hurdle we have to cross is if we are sitting there in disobedience or in sin and mired in our own self-centered just kind of all the junk in our life, we can't receive the armor of God. It's not that God doesn't want to apply it, doesn't want to give it to us, but we ourselves are going to have to decide to appropriate His grace and say, Lord, I need a fresh start. Aren't you glad He's a God of new beginnings? David prayed, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David was a man after God's own heart, but he said, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It starts with us realizing, God, I know you want me to have your power. I know you want me to be strong in you, but I also know right now my eyes are not on you, and I'm still, I still, I'm, I'm still holding on to some sin. I'm still holding on to some disobedience. I'm still holding on to something else that would... Keep me from being able to pick up the helmet and place it on. Put these things on. Apply these things. And we're going to have to let go of these things. But His grace grace reveals to us what is the roadblock. His grace will have us uh, confess it. His grace will help us to stand and then receive this forgiveness. 1 Peter 5.12 says, Testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Anytime we stand for the Lord, it's because of His grace. It's in His grace. It's through His grace. I love Titus chapter 2. I reference it, I probably reference it every third month or so in some teaching because uh, it, to me it's a, a fundamental text in the scripture of understanding the multifaceted work of grace. But Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 it tells us this about grace. So the same grace that we receive for forgiveness, the same grace that we stand and say, yes, Lord, I want to apply these things. What do we know about what grace does as far as teaching us? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All right, We all receive that grace with salvation. But Paul goes on, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So we see that the same grace that brought us salvation is going to reveal to us what's not right in our life. But it will train us to say no to those things, and when we say no to those things and yes to the Holy Spirit, then God lays the armor out in front of us and says, take the helmet, take this, place these things on. Otherwise, We've got a door blocking us, and it's the sin in our life. But grace that saved us is the same grace that continues to point out this will be a hindrance to you being armed by the Lord, right? There's a lot of people that come to church here and other churches around the country. Uh, They're saved, but they have no protection from the enemy because they don't walk in the power of the Lord. They don't walk in the armor of the Lord. And in many cases... Satan might be real satisfied with a person staying that way in a lukewarm state forever, but at the end of the day, you can get torn apart 
because you don't really have the protection and power of God in your life. Um, but we have to receive what God gives us. When I was younger, when I was a kid, you guys know I've told before how much I wanted to play Little League football, and I, I pestered my mom to death about it. Uh, and um, all, the only thing I had was a desire to be on the field and play football. I did not have, uh, or let me say a couple of things. I didn't want to be a spectator. I wanted to be on the field. Now think about us in the body of Christ. Do you want to be a spectator, or do you want to literally be on the field, used by God in his kingdom work that will play out until he returns, right? So you've got people saying, no, no, I'd, I'd rather be a spectator. I don't want to be part of it at all. And I, still always, think, I always think that that is um, really concerning to me. Uh, I don't think anyone that's born again could come to that conclusion because the Holy Spirit would never put that thought in your head, ever. The Holy Spirit would never say, and for you, I want you to find a bleacher seat up in the 58th row. Just bury your talent there. Remember what Jesus did to the guy who buried the talent? He said, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer limits. I mean, it, it just boggles the mind that God says, anyone that I save will actually be put into the battle, is going to need the whole armor of God. And at some point, at, I, there's, there's fits and starts as people mature, but at some point they will say, yes, Lord, I'll place it on. Well, when I wanted to play Little League football, I, I only had a desire to be on the field. Uh, I, didn't want to be a, I didn't want to be a spectator. I wanted to actively participate. I wanted to play. I wanted to get hit and hit somebody in spite of the risk to me and in spite of the risk you know, to fatigue and injury. I didn't think about any of that stuff. I just wanted to play. And I didn't care if I was going to get hurt or hit or anything else. I wanted to play. Uh, now, think about that. I said, Lord, I want to do it, but I had to get permission to do it. And I didn't have, personally, I didn't have any money at like nine years old. I had no money to pay the league fee, no money to buy the helmet, the shoulder pads, the uniform. Someone had to pay it on my behalf to do that, to get the proper safety equipment. But finally, I got my yes, you can play. And the answer, if you want to represent the Mayo Mustangs, that was our team. I'll give you what you need. My neighbor said they drive me to practice, right? So someone had to furnish the cost, the equipment, the transportation. All I had to have was the will and the desire to commit. And I believe that's what God has done. God says, I've provided everything. I have the armor. I've already paid the price. I've paid for your sins. I've given you the armor. You'll have my Holy Spirit to get you anywhere you need to get to. Uh, I will show you the directions. I have a playbook called the Bible that you can follow to the letter. Everything is taken care of by me. All I need to know, are you committed and you're going to get on the field? That's it. God says, the rest I'll provide. I need an answer, yes or no. And a lot of times people say, uh, can, I, can you come back to me a little later? I... I I want the protection, Lord, but I don't really want to be in the battle. And God says, you're already in it. You're on earth. Well, we know that, this, that God desires to give us that which we can stand against the devil. And, and Colossians 4.12, uh, 
Uh, Paul also writes that we would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to stand perfect and complete? Now, you know if you're perfect and complete, you're going to have this armor because the Holy Spirit's the one that told Paul to write it. So we know that perfect and complete would be to have the armor of God on. But what does perfect and complete look like? I'll give you a couple of passages. You know both of these. But I think both these give a good illustration of what perfect and complete. Now, it doesn't mean perfect like Jesus perfect. It means perfect in that you are applying what the Holy Spirit has called for us to be and to do. Right? Uh, none of us are perfect till we get to heaven. Uh, but uh, in the sense of we are not resisting, but we are yielding to the Spirit's commands and to the Spirit's call, we then can apply the, apply the armor of God. Here's a couple of verses that, uh, that I know you know that give us an idea of what complete looks like in the will of God. Because this is true for every single person that's born again. This is what God wants for all of us. 2 Timothy 1.7 is a good one. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. How many people in your lifetime do you meet that are fearless, full of love, full of power, and a sound mind? You can find people that are full of power, but they're usually not necessarily full of love. You can find people sometimes that seem like really, really loving, but that doesn't mean they have a sound mind. Some of them are like, you're thinking, that is a real fruit loop I just met, you know? This is the way you, you met your aunt that wanted to kiss you all over the face when you were a kid, right? You're thinking, that's loving, but that's nuts. All of these different, uh, but, but a, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, most of us are fearful about lots of things. We hide those fears from everybody else. Some of them we don't hide well. But people in general are very fearful. Most people make a lot of decisions based on fear. But God says, no, 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 perfect in me. The one who walks in my will, the one who walks in my spirit, is not a, not a person driven by fear. They're driven by faith. The opposite of fear is faith. They are filled with my power. They are filled with my love, and they have a sound mind. They assess situations from the mind of Christ. They see things through the eyes of Jesus, not through the eyes of man. Right? And so that would be a complete Look at someone in the will of God. Nehemiah 8.10, another one. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. A person who not only has the strength of the Lord, but when you meet them, you're like, man, even if their things are going bad, they still have joy. They still have joy. They don't bring everyone in the room down. They lift everyone in the room up. The person that says, you know, I'll pray for you, and you know that they actually will that they actually mean it, that they'll still send you a note or send you a text or uh, this kind of love and power, sound mind, the joy, walking in joy. Joy is lacking in so many people's life. And if joy is lacking, I can assure you the other stuff is lacking as well. Love, power, and there's going to be a, a, a lot of fear in an individual that doesn't have joy because you have joy, when you, are, when you don't have fear, you have true joy because you know that God is in control and you really believe it regardless of the circumstances. But it is His will. 
If we're going to be armed to stand, it's God's will that we be clothed with His armor, filled with His Holy Spirit, walking in power, walking in joy. That is what a, that's a complete picture. Uh, I've met people that I think, again, they're not perfect, but I've met people that I think I see in them the whole armor of God. When I look at their lives, you've seen them too. You see people, I say, when I see their life, I see the whole armor of God. I see salvation evident in their life. I see love and mercy from their lips. I see a power uh, when they speak or share the Word of God. All these different things, I see a sound mind, strong decision-making that's never based on what's in it for me and fleshly and how can I get one up on somebody else, but it's based on what Christ desires and designs in our life. These are the things that if we're going to be armed to stand, we have to start and stand in grace. And we have to receive grace and understand that grace isn't a license to stay where we're at, it is the power to train us to move beyond where we're at. Amen? That's what grace is. It shows us the pathway, and then God gives us the stre- just enough strength. Most of the things that God asks you to do, He gives you just enough strength to take the first step. Isn't that true? A lot of times what we think we're going to wait for is, God, God, uh, you want me to run a marathon, I'll run a marathon when I know I can run 25.8 miles. I don't even know, how the marathon's 26.2, right? I'll know I can run 26.2 when I can run 25.8. God says, no, no, no. I'll know you can run 26.2 when you're ready to want, run one mile. Then I'll move you beyond that. I'll accelerate my power. It'll be wind at your sails, so to speak, but I'm not going to take you there unless you're going to take the first steps of standing and saying, Lord, I stand your grace, I confess my sins, I get rid of the hindrances, laying every side, every weight and hindrance in Hebrews chapter 12, and then you say, Lord, I'm going to appropriate through prayer, Lord, I, you can pray through this whole thing. Lord, I ask that you would place these things on me by your Holy Spirit, and he will. Let's look at the next, arm to fight, verses 12 through 13. Arm to fight, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against uh, uh, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the... Listen to the terminology here. Rulers of the darkness of this age. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one giving Paul these, uh, these words and these images. Only at the angelic spirit level can God see how dark dark really is around us. I don't, we don't have any idea the demonic, oppressive world system that Satan has set up that's from North Pole to South Pole, around the equator, every major city, and lives of people, darkness. It's why, you know, you, you see story after story after story where people said, I, they lived right next door. I never realized this. I thought they were really, I thought they were a great neighbor, and they're like a serial killer, right? Uh, and all of these things happen because there's a darkness that the world can't see, but Paul says God sees it. And there's rulers of that darkness which work directly for Satan. There's a demonic realm that's in charge of stirring the pot. Now, human beings are already sinners. They already have a sin nature. They would sin even if, and matter of fact, this is going to happen in the, in the thousand-year reign of Christ. God's going to remove Satan and all the demonic forces, and mankind will still choose sin at the end of the thousand years. Hard to believe. But during that time, there's no one to stir the pot. There's no one to drive up, 
even more uh, wickedness and sin and all of the things that we see around us. But you look at the language here, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm, in the part you and I can't see the heavenly places. This is in the unseen world, but God sees it. Satan walks up and down in it, and the angels can see it. Michael the archangel, Gabriel, that realm can see the battle that we're in and all of the sophisticated strategies and schemes of Satan to take every single person possible to hell is ultimately the strategy. And it's working. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. But we are supposed to be armed to fight in a battle against an enemy we do not see with physical eyes but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is right there. Remember Peter, uh, when he thought he was doing the Lord a favor by saying, I will not let you go to the cross, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. At that moment, Peter had been employed by the enemy and didn't even know it. The, the, the amazing thing is how many people are employed by Satan have no idea that they are. And sometimes, even Christians, because unwittingly, they're walking according to this world as opposed to walking in the power of the Holy Spirit with the whole armor of God. And so they don't have a sound mind. They don't have discernment. They walk right into trap after trap after trap, piercing themselves with sorrows, as the Scriptures say, as opposed to walking in victory. But we have an enemy Therefore take up, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Folks, we're in the evil day. It's been the evil day ever since uh, uh, Adam and Eve. But the days are getting more evil, and they will get more evil as the coming of the Lord is at hand, closer we get. But he goes on to say, having done all to stand. Again, we see this, uh, this term stand several times. God telling us that he wants us to stand. Uh, You're not going to be able to fight against an adversary laying down. You're going to have to stand. Um, You're going to have to stand in the Lord, with the Lord, behind the Lord, right? All of these things. He goes before us. He'll stand with us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We can stand, but we can only stand in his strength. He'll strengthen the feeble knees, uh, that we have. In Psalm 144.1 it says, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now in the Old Testament we know that Israel really uh, was a literal uh, utensil as a nation in the hands of God. A, a little tool in the hand of God where Israel actually defeated other countries. God would use them to exact punishment on you know. Uh, barbaric and idolatrous nations. And of course Israel then decided to go the same route and God dealt with them the same way that they had previously dealt with their enemies. But David was a man of war. Of course he couldn't build the temple, right? Because he was a man of bloodshed. And God, but, but God gave him many victories. You know, We know the great victory over Goliath, but that was just one of many victories that David had. And God trained his hands for war. Now for you and I and the Lord... And uh, when we get, we'll get to this more when we get to the sword of the Spirit, it's interesting that our fingers do more of this, or should be. 
that our fingers of war, because our war, again, we're not picking up a real sword like Peter did and cutting off the ear of a real person or even our enemy in the spiritual realm, but we are needing to be trained. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We cannot be trained in the Lord apart from his word. This is his direction. This is the war manual. This is the playbook. This is everything that God, you cannot learn how to walk in Christ. And you can't learn it by just being here on a Sunday and a Wednesday. You have to have your time with the Lord because you actually have your own personal relationship with the Lord and He personally trains and He personally leads us and teaches us how to fight. And He also shows you individually and me individually my weaknesses are not necessarily your weaknesses. Amen? You say, I know that because I can point out all your weaknesses because I see you on a regular basis and you have to speak publicly. We have different weaknesses but we all have them, don't we? We have different temptations, but we all have them. There's no temptation taken you or me, but such is common to man, but God will with the temptation make a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. We all have temptations. We all have weaknesses. We all have blind spots, but God doesn't have any blind spots. And he'll show you, isn't it great when he shows you a blind spot? And that's no longer a blind spot. You actually get to do something about it. You get to say, Lord, how do I mature in this? I don't want this to be a hindrance anymore. It might just be a character flaw. It might be, you know, you promise to be on time and you never are, right? It might be something that, uh, that you just don't make commitments. And there can be all kinds of things. It, it might be that you just allow yourself too much grace and things that God says, you don't need any grace in that anymore. You need to grow beyond it. And so what all, they, all these things, uh, God will show us what these blind spots are and how the enemy, is the, the enemy is going to attack the weakest link in all of us, isn't he? I mean, if it ain't broken, don't fix it, right? If the enemy knows that all they have to do is one little thing and you're out, then the enemy will just continue to do it. You know, I love sports. Good coaches are going to run a play until you prove you can stop it, right? Now, you and I can't stop the enemy, but we can say no to what God has been saying. It's time that you put this away, and then we can, place, uh, we can actually stand and fight. We battle against an enemy and an adversary that is absolutely, hear this out, we battle against an enemy, an adversary that is absolutely enraged. If we understand the term, darkness, wickedness, rulers, principalities, the demonic world, they love and laugh that people don't believe they exist. You know a lot of people don't believe Satan exists. They believe Jesus existed, but they don't believe Satan exists. Well, the enemy for those folks, they're not bothered much by Satan. Matter of fact, he might actually help them be even more successful, make more money, have more friends, more riotous living, more pats on the back, more neighbors that think you are the swellest person I've ever met. But if you want to follow Christ, you have an enemy that's absolutely enraged and hates our relationship with Christ. And yet... 
As much as Satan is enraged at us, he hates us and he hates Jesus. Hates. Not that, he doesn't, it's not like Jesus and Satan have a little disagreement. Jesus hates with a hatred worse than all of the world's wickedness than you can possibly. Hates Christ with a vengeance and hates those followers. How else would they torture Christians like it's happening around the world? The hatred is unbelievable. It's heinous beyond our comprehension, the darkness of this world, and yet, this is what's really cool, and yet our enemy is already defeated and has a mortal wound and is dying a slow death into the lake of fire today. It's hard for us to remember that because we see wickedness proliferating and seemingly that it is winning on every single level and God says, not by a mile. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15. Speaking of what he did on the cross, which was the death blow to Satan. Remember, Jesus had his heel bruised, but he crushed the head of Satan and he did it at Mount Calvary. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, same principalities and powers we're talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaks of in Colossians chapter 2. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now this is an odd thing for Paul to write because Jesus was the one that had the public spectacle. And yet God says, you know, from my vantage point, Satan was mortally wounded and died that day and was defeated that day. The rest of you will find out soon enough because your life is but a vapor and then you'll see it from God's side. Isn't that great? So when we realize that we're told to fight against an enemy that Jesus has already defeated, it should instill a little more confidence in us, shouldn't it? Think about it. This is what Paul's saying. He says, stand against the wall, put on the whole armor of God. But if you understand what Paul says and writes in Colossians, like, look, you're fighting against an enemy who is enraged because he's got like a lot of bullet holes in him and he's dying. He's trying to fire off the last of his bullets at you and me and all the rest of us until Jesus calls us home. But he's like, at the same time, you can put on the armor and you can stand and eventually he'll even flee from you believe it or not. He'll come back, by the way. But he'll flee and come back, and he'll flee and come back, and he'll flee and come back. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapters 2, or chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you therefore must endure a hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. If you're saved, Jesus has enlisted you as a soldier. Really? Yes. I'm enlisted. I enlisted when I said, Lord, save me from my sins. And so now I'm called to be a soldier of Christ. You're called to be a soldier of Christ. We're told to take up and stand and fight. It's interesting when I look at this text and other texts, particularly in the New Testament, um, you you have some of these ministries that uh, um, are out there where people are like barking at Satan and talking to him. And uh, you know, we know that from Jude, Jude said that even Michael the archangel didn't bring a reviling accusation against Satan. Do you notice that there's no command here to go on some offensive attack against the enemy? It's told to stand your ground. 
right? It, there's, no, there's no command to say, yeah, we're going to charge hell with a, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against us, but even still, the terminology is the gates of hell are coming at us and we're standing. Because Jesus, again, I, this is my own perspective, Jesus has already won the battle. He's already disarmed. He's already defeated the enemy. He's never asked us to win the battle. He's asked us to stand with him. He's already won the battle. We're not told to go on the offensive. Now we are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We'll get to that next week when the kids are with us and the gospel of peace. If there's any offensive in our game plan, it's to offensively go tell people, but what is, but we'll get to, I'm getting ahead of myself next week, it's the gospel of peace. It's not the gospel of war. It's not the gospel of telling unsaved people, um, all of you are going to burn and rot and all these different things. Now, we, we, we must preach hell, but it's also not these uh, ministry out there that are talking about and I bind you, Satan, and all this nonsense. I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. We're simply told, we're not, we're not told to talk to the devil. We're not told to talk to the demon world. We're not told to try and convince them that we have more power. We're told to just stand in power. And then God does the talking, and they know when Jesus speaks. It was Jesus when he came to the man of Gadara, filled with all the demons. They said, uh, what have you come to torment us early? Essentially, they were, they were petrified at Jesus. They're not petrified of you and me. They will resist or, or they will pull back as God enforces our obedience and our standing in the armor of the Lord. But we, first and foremost, we have to commit. We have to commit to being a soldier for the Lord. We have to commit that we're going to stand in the Holy Spirit we're going to stand in purity. We're going to stand in holiness. These are the things that make Satan tremble. When you're on your knees in prayer, not when you're saying goofy things like, I bind you, Satan. And that, he laughs at that. I see that kind of stuff, and I know that that has no power over the enemy whatsoever. We got, an, we got a picture of it in the book of Acts. Remember in the book of Acts, there was two yahoos that thought they could cast out demons, right? And they're like, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who in the heck are you? And they beat the tar out of them right? We bind you demons and all this kind of stuff, and it just, it, it has no power, where if instead your standing is just walking in obedience to Christ, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, telling the waitress about the Lord, telling this person about the Lord, helping your neighbor, loving your coworker, doing these kind of things, then you actually are being a good soldier in the Lord. You're fighting against the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit with the gospel of peace, which we'll get to next week, with truth, with love, all of these things, and the enemy is bound and is defeated in that walking out with power and of love and a sound mind, not this other substitute stuff, which is just emotionalism, and there is no power in that. A.W. Tozer said, I think I've read this once before. I don't think I read the whole thing. I read a little piece of it before. I'll read the whole thing. He said, the idea that this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now been accepted and practiced by the vast majority of fundamentalist Christians. Now, of course, he wrote this back in the early 1900s. They might hedge around the question if they were asked bluntly to declare their position, but their conduct gives them away. 
They are facing both ways, enjoying Christ and the world, gleefully telling everybody that accepting Jesus does not require them to give up their fun. Christianity is just the jolliest thing imaginable. The worship growing out of such a view of life is as far off center as the view itself. A sort of sanctified nightclub without the champagne and the dressed up drunks. This whole thing has grown to be so serious that it is now the bound duty of all Christians to re-examine their spiritual philosophy in the light of the Bible. Having discovered the scriptural way, they must follow it. Even if to do so, they must separate themselves from much of what they had accepted as real, but which now in the light of truth is seen to be false. A right view of God and the world is to come, uh, to come requires that we have a right view of the world in which we live and of our relationship to it. So much depends upon this that we cannot afford to be careless about it. He wrote this in his The World Playground or Battleground. And when we understand that we're in a battle, it is a battleground. You, you, you're not given the option by the Lord to, stay, to sit in the bleachers. You have to be enlisted as a good soldier. Not an AWOL soldier, but a good soldier. And God's gracious with us. He's going to give us the armor. He's going to give us the protection. He's going to give us the guidance. He's going to give us joy and strength and trials and tribulations. But we have to be willing to do things to lay aside our flesh. KP Hannon, every now and then, he'll have testimonies in his newsletter. And one that really struck me was a family. Now think about this. Imagine if the entire body of Christ did something like this. Or just one church. There was one family that they decided husband and wife, good middle-income family, they decided because they wanted to be used of God even more and reach more people that they would not buy one new thing for a full year, nothing, unless it was a, like a, you know, had to replace the water cooler or the muffler fell off the car. You know, but other than that, they wouldn't buy one new thing, not birthday presents, not Christmas presents, not one new thing for a full year that they could be, use the, oh, the excess to reach more people with the gospel. That really struck me. That's one of those things. Now, that's an American family. It's one thing, a lot of times I think we, we hear stories overseas in American, we can't really relate to that. I think that's easier for us to, to relate to than if you hear about, uh, yeah, so-and-so, and I, and I pray constantly for the persecuted church, and I really, really do. But because we don't see and understand that on that level, but you do understand... Now, what would it be like if we chose just three months, six months, nothing new, nothing new, just going to absolutely just whatever God tells us to do with it. Think about it. That's thinking about the world as a battleground versus a playground. The church follows the world way too much. They're not standing and fighting. They're actually commiserating with the same philosophies of the world and they have dumbed-down versions of it. I mean, everything we do in, the, in, in, in Christianity, they have a music industry, we copy their music industry, we just change the words. You know, we have all these different things. And so uh, is this really what the Lord would have us do? Let's look at the last thing. We only have a second here, or five minutes, we'll wrap it up. Verse 14, armed to persevere, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, ha- having put on the breastplate of righteousness armed to persevere, stand there. He's already said stand a couple of times, and now he says it again, stand therefore. Stand therefore. Girded your waist with truth and the breastplate of righteousness. 
Many people have fallen away from the Lord down through the ages, down through the last 2,000 years since Christ uh, went back to be with the Father. Many people have fallen away from the Lord because they no longer love the truth or cling to the truth. He said you've got to gird your waist with truth. It's not enough to know truth. You've got to love truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth. You have to literally love Christ. He is the embodiment of truth. Just like God is the embodiment of love, you cannot have genuine love and not love God. You cannot have genuine truth and not love Christ. They are one and the same. God is love. Christ is truth. They, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is the well from which we draw from. Paul said in Galatians 5, 7, you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Prior state. You ran well for a while, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, no one hinders us from obeying the truth, but who? Us. Paul's asking a redundant question. He knows that some people were bad influences, because bad company does corrupt good character, which is why we must... Uh, have fellowship regularly. If you don't have regular fellowship with other, other believers, you will eventually fall away from at least, I'm not saying fall away from the faith, but you're going to fall away at some level from any kind of power and walk with Christ. Although you could fall away completely if you stay away. Everyone needs the other soldiers in the army. That's the way God made it. Now, he could have done it differently. In other words, we're also compared to a family, but you can't walk out in the family and say, I'll see you all in 50 years, and say you have a relationship with that family. You can't tell the army, hey, uh, I joined the Marines. I'm not going to be fighting any battles, but you can mail my check. I'm moving to San Francisco. Mail my check there on a monthly basis. Makes no sense, right? It's impossible to receive if you're not actually in, and so the Lord has put us in Him, and in Him we're all in this battle together to stand against the wiles of the devil, but in standing we're going to do it through walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we'll look at in our devotions the next four weeks. But there is another thing to understand here. There is no righteousness. It says uh, in the text, having girded your waist with truth, having Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, truth and righteousness are linked together in the same sentence there, the same verse. There is no righteousness without truth. Jesus prayed in John 17, 7. He prayed for all the future saints. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So truth has a cleansing effect. Uh, Righteousness is when we're clean before the Lord, right? Now, we, we have a permanent righteousness through the blood of Christ, those of us who are saved, we're sealed until the day of redemption, but we also daily need to be refreshed and cleaned again. We have to keep going back and saying, Lord, I blew it, cleanse me, and we're refreshed, right? So we have this righteousness, uh, there's, the, there's the heavenly righteousness as it's settled forever in heaven, but then there's also the uh, daily needing to be cleansed. And uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 previous chapter, we're in chapter 6, but chapter 5 verse 26 tells us that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. I need the word every day to be washed by it. How about you? Because our feet get dirty in this world, don't they? Our mind gets dirty in this world. Our hands get dirty. Our attitudes get really dirty, don't they? 
Our attitudes are wrong, and so God has to wash them. And we read it, we realize, wow, my attitude is wrong. It stinks. I need a spiritual shower. The Word of God does it. It's a mirror, too, and it shows you, oh, things are not right with the face. It's a mirror. You can't have righteousness without having truth. We need these things. Now, truth without... The other thing we need together is we need truth and love all coming together. When we put on truth and we put on the breastplate of righteousness, one of the things that will manifest in our life is we'll really have genuine love. We must put truth and love on together. Truth without love becomes self-righteousness. You ever seen someone that's all into truth but they have no love? Pharisees were like this, right? Now, some of the Pharisees didn't even follow truth, but some of them did. Some of them really followed the letter of the law, and they were as mean as a snake. Oh, someone sinned, stone them, right? That's truth without love. But then you also have love without truth is fraudulent. Love without truth. That's the, that's the apostate church, which is growing by leaps and bounds all over the world. That is love without truth. And they are redefining what love is. They're redefining what God says love is. That's not truth. That's a fraud. So you have truth with no love, and you have love with no truth, which is not love at all. That's a fraud. It's something completely different. But Ephesians 5, 2 tells us to walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us an offering a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. We really walk in love, and we really walk in truth. And you can only get truth by studying and devouring the Word of God in your own life, asking the Holy Spirit to show you wondrous things from His law, but then walking in it and loving people, forgiving people. You know, fervent love, Peter said, covers a multitude of sins. That's how your marriage can improve by leaps and bounds. If you don't have a, if you don't have a, a loving marriage, uh, you probably don't know how to quickly forgive. Because true love quickly forgives these things. You can love your worst enemy, and yet still, in truth, if you had the opportunity to say, but God would still save you if you would turn from fill in the blank. That's the truth part. They may not want to hear that, but if you're given the open opportunity to say it, you can say it with love, and God can open up doors that you and I could never imagine. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Got to have the help of the Holy Spirit. Got to have the grace to get there. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now Peter actually emphasizes that quite a bit. Uh, in his epistles. And then lastly, First uh, John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Truth and righteousness. Truth and purity. These are the things that, uh, that if we are walking in truth, and we're walking in forgiveness, and we're walking in genuine love, we will persevere. We'll always see things from God's perspective. We'll be able to, Jesus had compassion. We'll talk about this more with the gospel of peace. Uh, we're out of time. I hope this entry was a good starting point, and we'll get, uh, we'll get to the next four sections in uh, 20 to 30 minute increments with the kids starting next week.